0: The most fun stuff was like these people that would pop up and be like, I don't program, but I just like learned how to write this hundred line script that like does this thing that I need. It's like oh my god.
1: This is the No Priors Podcast. I'm Sarah Goa. I'm Alad Gale. We invest in, advise, and help start technology companies.
2: In this podcast, we're talking with the leading founders and researchers in AI about the biggest questions.
1: Everyone talks about the future impact of AI, but this week on No Priors, we're talking with the architect of arguably the first AI product that has already revolutionized a profession, GitHub Copilot. Alex Gravely was the principal engineer and chief architect behind this product, a sort of pair programmer that auto-completes your code as you type. It's rapidly become a product that developers won't live without, and the most leaned upon analogy for every new startup, Copilot for finance, for sales, marketing, support, writing, decision-making, everything. Alex is a longtime hacker and tinkerer, open source contributor, repeat founder, and creator of products that millions of people use, such as Dropbox Paper. I have huge respect for the range of work he's done, ranging from hardware-level security and virtualization to real-time, collaborative, web-native, and AI-driven UI. He has a new project in stealth, Minion. Just as a heads up, we recorded this podcast episode in person, and you'll notice we don't sound as crisp as we usually do. Still, I think you'll enjoy listening to this conversation. Let's get into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Hi. So let's start with some background. How did you end up working in tech or AI?
0: Tech was earlier. I started, you know, really young, and uh, I got really into Linux when I was fourteen or so, and. Um, yeah, it was right around the time when the web was like a new thing and you had to work to kind of get on the web. I just, the idea of helping in the open and making it freely available so other people could learn from things like I was learning from things seemed great. So I went and spent many years just working on open source stuff. But yeah, spent many hours compiling kernels and uh, hacking on stuff. And uh, yeah.
1: And what was the thought process behind starting like Hackpad?
0: Oh, Hackpad. Yeah, so I had just finished like four or five years at VMware and uh, I wanted to get into startups. I knew knew that. And then, so I left VMware and I started working on an, an education startup like many of us do. Many, many founders start with like the idea of an education startup. It's like a rite of passage. Yeah, it's like a rite of passage. Yeah, so I spent, I don't know, nine months working on that. Turns out education is very hard. So after nine months, I was like, all right, this isn't going anywhere. I, know, I don't know if there's a value prop here. I mean, that's that was the value is that I learned that like you have to make something that is both achievable and that people want to pay for or spend their time on. So yeah, then I was just kind of fishing around. I was living in like a warehouse in San Francisco, a bunch of Burning Man people. And, uh, we were having trouble organizing large scale Burning Man projects. And so I forked Etherpad and started hacking on it, recruited a friend to. In the community to start working out with me and yeah just grew from there before we did yc we had most many of the large burning man camps using it to organize their their builds
1: can you describe the product experience
0: oh yeah it was a real-time text editor kind of like google docs google docs is the only other one that did that at that time it was kind of nice because it would highlight who said what so you could go track down if somebody had a contribution be like oh well, what did you mean or Uh, I heard you say something about this. So that's very useful in like um, large scale, anonymous, pseudo anonymous groups where you don't really know who has ownership over what, like Burning Man Camps. And let's see. And then we did YC and then we got uh, a bunch, almost many of those people did it. it my like, my hack was to go do YC and try and get all the companies doing YC to use my product. Which many of them did. I also took like very extensive notes of all the YC presentations using the product that everyone would then like look at, and we were able to get Stripe, and Stripe used us for many years. Actually, they built for for the I think we were their first knowledge base. They used it for a long time. A bunch of other big companies as well.
1: And post Dropbox acquisition, you worked <coughs> on what became Paper. How did you think about like what you wanted to go work on next?
0: I spent the next few years kind of poking around at stuff. I knew that i wanted to make a robot that does stuff for you so there's this company called magic so i went and worked at this uh, company called magic they were doing this like text-based personal assistance mm-hmm. uh
1: you remember
2: this one I, I think just like everybody starts an education startup magic is one of those names of cycling and there's a really cool AI company right now called Magic as well. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's also
0: these names that kind of
2: persist from generation to generation, which I think is really cool. I'm sure you know it's CodeGen.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, yeah. I haven't seen a demo yet, but it sounds like they're doing the right thing. There's a few people doing that kind of whole repository changes. So it seems like a great direction. It was all Opspace. It was super heavy Opspace. So, you know, they had teams of people and it was 24 hours and they would cycle in and, and you know, they would lose context. And like, they're all busy because they're trying to like deal with lots of people with lots of requests all the time. And so really it was like a crash course in like human behavior, right? Like what do people do under stress? How do they act? What do they say? What can you train? What can't you train? Like, can you bucket stuff? And the answer is no. Like humans are complicated, especially in text form. The beauty of the web and like traditional UIs, right, is that you fill them in. And like, if it doesn't do what you want, then you make the decision to either go forward or not go forward, right? Text has this uh, annoying property of you can be all the way at the 99% mark and then change the goal entirely. Yeah, so it's, it's complicated. It's hard to understand what people want. It's hard to understand the complexity involved, especially when you're dealing with the real world. Flights get delayed. Passwords get lost. Do you think we're the last
2: generation to deal with that? In other words, it feels like we're about to hit a transition point in which agents can actually start doing some of these things for us for real. When before, I think all these products really started with these operations heavy approaches. I remember, you know, there was a really early sort of um, personalized search engine called Ardbark. Or similarly, if you kind of look behind the hood, it was a lot of ops people and there was a little bit of algorithm, right?
0: That was really really like um, you would like sort of describe what you're good at or something and then they would try and send questions to you. and Yeah, answer. yeah exactly. They kind of route things, but I think there's
2: actually people doing some of the routing at least, or I can't exactly remember, right? But I think it was, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to build these really complex sort of bots or agents that were doing really rich things and the technology just wasn't there, it feels like, for a period of time. There was also some startups... I remember one company um, that I got involved with that was trying to do like virtual scheduling and assistance, you know, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight years ago. And again, it felt yeah. like it was a little bit early maybe. What were they called?
1: Clara Labs. Was
0: called Clara, Clara, that's yeah. the one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: I remember the Sarah. Yeah. and then like, we had an operator. Do you remember Operator?
0: Yeah, I remember Operator. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was like three or four And then. then
1: like on the question answering stuff, we had Jelly, so there's a whole series oh, yeah, of yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah, what we were able to do with Magic, as a, like an aside there, you know, I, I started working there because I wanted to work on the AI part. I think somewhere in there, M, Facebook M started as well. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was a fun place to try and learn everything I could about solving those problems. So, yeah, before Transformers, there was uh, sequence to sequence was kind of the previous iteration. We were able to like take all the all the histories of the chats between assistants and, and people and train a little model on it and uh, a little by today's metrics and run it and it would like it would show some gray text in the little text bar and people could edit it and hit enter and hit the
1: operators like, yeah yeah not-
0: the operators and yeah we would measure how much time they spent uh, they spent typing with it and without it and so it would save like half an hour across 100 people per day uh, across an eight hour shift so yeah that was like my first shipping ai product
1: and then how'd you end up going to um, microsoft
0: oh yeah there's a bunch of other stuff along with so after that i got into crypto my friend was doing h which was a like, uh, sort of a CAPTCHA marketplace, which is now like a, something like the number one or number two CAPTCHA service in the world, which is crazy. So kind of launched that. That was fun. Annoyed people the world over for many, many man hours in aggregate, and then left that to work with Moxie on, on a cryptocurrency for Signal. So that was really fun, complicated. And it all worked in a few seconds. We were shooting for Venmo quality. When you think about crypto in the context of AI, because people talk about it in a few
2: different contexts, right? One is you have programmatic sort of money as code running. And so that could create all sorts of really interesting things from an agent-driven perspective. But then the other piece of it is identity. And some people think, I mean, WorldCoin would be one example, but there's other examples of effectively trying to secure identity cryptographically on the blockchain in an open way and then using that identity in the future to differentiate between AI-driven agents and people. Do you think that's gonna be important or does that stuff not really matter in terms of the identity portion of not only crypto, but just like how we think about the future of agents?
0: It's a good question. The honest answer is I think we're gonna go through a many year period of extreme discomfort where AIs pretend to be things or uh, or confuse people or extract money from your grandparents or drain people's life savings in ways that are scary. And, you know, open AI is trying to do their best, but for some reason, the focus has been on open AI doing everything. And instead of like, we should go build the systems that prevent that we should go pass the legislation that, that drops the hammer on people doing that stuff. We should go all this kind of stuff that is, unfortunately, it seems like we're going to need some really bad things to happen before. We align correctly. I'm not really scared about AIs killing us, although I'm very grateful that there are people that are thinking about it. I'm more worried about bad people using new technology to hurt us. Yeah, Ilya
2: from Nir has some really interesting thoughts on this because he was one of the main author or he was the last author on the Transformer paper before he started Near, mm-hmm. And he's brought up these concepts of like how do you stress test society relative to the coming wave of AI, which I think is an interesting concept. Yeah, it's
0: a great, it's a great way to look at it. Like it's not as bad as it could be. Right. If you think about it, there most of the things that you want to spam, either have a spam blocker or are somewhat difficult to create an account on. Mm-hmm. So doing a better job of uh, sock puppet account filtering is going to be really important going forward. You know, I like what Cloudflare is doing with their kind of fingerprinting instead of visual captures, which are not good enough anymore. One thing that is like kind of a saving grace-, grace here is is that many of the things that you would want to do cost money. So calling everybody costs money. Texting everyone should be hopefully illegal soon, but also costs money. Maybe not enough money to prevent these things, but
1: probably not enough as agents can make money,
0: right? And they can just
1: look at the trade-offs of cost.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I guess I would say it's not, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. It's like imagine there's an, you know. North Korea has been trying to do this to us for a long time, right? Now there's a North Korea that has more resources or is more distributed or whatever. It's, you know, we have some mitigations. We need more. We need to be thinking about it a lot more. How did you end up at GitHub and how did you end up working on Copilot? While I was working on MobileCoin. My dad's kidneys failed and I tried to donate a kidney. And they found a lump in my chest as part of the scans they do. And uh, I had to have my right, most of my right lung removed in 2018 and so that was a big deal and so took some time it's weird healing from internal injuries takes a lot longer than you you think anyway happy story is that I don't have cancer now for over four years and my dad's kidneys got he got a transplant also so things are good and so after I don't know I guess I was recovering for for quite a while and then i went and begged my friend for a job i figured i should start working again that was the transition i guess so i worked on some random stuff at first i converted github to using their own product to build github which was kind of fun they weren't yeah so i think people still use code spaces now to build github which is pretty cool but yeah then this kind of opportunity to work with OpenAI came up and because i had been tracking ai in the past and was pretty aware of what was going on i jumped on it was that proposed by OpenAI or by GitHub or who kind of initiated it all? So I don't know the exact beginnings. I know that OpenAI and Microsoft were working on a deal for supercomputers. So they wanted to build a big cluster for training and there was a big deal that was being worked out and there was some software kind of provisions thrown in, I think, Office and Bing, probably. And GitHub was like, oh, well, OK, well, maybe there's something GitHub can do here. I think OpenAI threw a small threw a small fine tune over and was like, here's a small model trained on um, on some code, see if this is interesting, you know. So we played around with it. What's small? In I ways? don't know. This was, uh, I have to remember now, I think this is before I knew very much. So it was definitely not a Da vinci sized model, that's for sure. I don't know what size it was. Yeah. And so uh, it was just like, I learned later that this was basically a training artifact. So they had wanted to see what introducing code into their base models would do. I think it had positive effects on chain of thought reasoning. Code is kind of linear, so... Mm-hmm. You can imagine that, you know, you kind of do stuff one after another, and the things before uh, have an impact. And yeah, it was not that good. It was very bad. It was, I think, just like I said, just an artifact and a small sample of GitHub data that they had crawled. And this is before actually I, I joined. Me and this guy, Albert Ziegler, were the first two after... Uge. Uge got a hold of this model and started playing with it. And he was able to say, like, well, you know, like it doesn't work most of the time, but here it is doing something. You know, here's here's and it was only Python at that time. Here it is, you know, generating something useful. We didn't really understand anything. So that was enough to like okay well you know go fetch a couple of people and start working, see, see see if there's anything there. We didn't really know what we had so the first you know task was to go test it out see what it did. We crowdsourced a bunch of python problems in house stuff that we knew wouldn't be in the training set and then we we started work on fetching repositories and finding the tests in them so that we could basically generate functions that were being tested and see if the tests still pass. There had been like a brand new pytest feature introduced like recently that allowed you to see which functions were called by the pytest. So you go find that function, zero its body, ask the model to generate it and then rerun the test and see if it passed. And I think it was less, I don't know, 10% something like that of of those guys and the dimensions are kind of like how many chances do you give it to solve something and then how do you test whether it's worked or not, right? So for the standalone tests, that was we had people write test functions and then we would try to generate the body. And if the test passed, then, you know, it works. And in the wild test harness, we would download a repository, run all the tests, look at the ones that passed, find the functions that they called, make sure that they weren't trivial, generate the bodies for them, rerun the tests, see what it passes, see what you get your percentage. Yeah. I mean, it was something like some very, very low percentage up front, but we knew that there was kind of a lot more juice to squeeze so like getting all of github's code into the model um and then a bunch of other tricks that we hadn't you know we hadn't even thought of at that time yeah and eventually you know it, it went from you know less than 10 on in the wild test to over 60 percent so that's like one in two tests it can just generate code for which is insane Somewhere along the way, you know, there was like 10 percent to 20 percent to 35 percent to 45 percent. You know, these kind of like improvements along the way. Somewhere along the way, we did more prompting work so that the prompts got better. Somewhere along the way, they used, you know, all the versions of the code as opposed to just the most recent version. They used diffs so that it could understand small changes like. Yeah, it, just, it got better. And so, but at the, when we first started, we were just, we didn't know we had, we were just trying to figure it out. At the time they, they were thinking in terms of like, maybe you can replace Stack Overflow or something, you know, do a Stack Overflow competitor.
1: Was that the first like product idea I think, you guys had for
0: it? I, I, I don't know that we had that idea. I think that was kind of like a-
1: beyond yeah, on-high yeah,
0: yeah, 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 that was more like uh, would nice nice if you made something that competed with Stack Overflow, because we have all this code, wouldn't it be nice to leverage it? Yeah. And so we made some UIs, but like early on, you know, it was like <laughs> early on, it was bad. So it would be like you'd watch it and it it would it would like it would run and most of them would be bad. And it'd be like, there'd be like one success and be like, oh, sweet. I got a success, but I had to wait, you know, some number of seconds for. Was the test
1: success. user group just like. Six of you, like some larger group.
0: The first iteration was just like an internal tool that people would that help people write these tests, mm-hmm. and then we wanted to see if maybe we could turn that into some UI that people would use. Where, <laughs> if there was some way to cover up the fact that one in ten things pass, right? So we tried we tried a few UI things there, and then it was actually OpenAI. It was like it would be nice if we could. We're testing these model fine tunes. It'd be nice if we could like test them more quickly. Can what about doing like a VS Code extension? Just do autocomplete. And uh, I was like, all right, sure, why not? And yeah, so we did autocomplete at first and that was kind of, that was a big jump, you know, cause they were still thinking in terms of like stack overflow, you know, but this was It's like, you know, I didn't have any ideas basically. I didn't know how to beat stack overflow with this thing, but we could play with some stuff in, in VS code that was maybe closer to the code, you know, first we did autocomplete and that was kind of fun. It was useful. It would show this little pop-up box like Autocomplete does, and you could pick some strings. And so that format, actually, you know, the the usage was, you know, it's fine. It wasn't the right metaphor exactly, right? But you've got, like, this code generated, mixed in with the specific terms that are in the code, and it's a little, it's not exactly the same thing. We tried things like adding a little button over top of empty functions, so you would go generate them, or you could, like, hit a control key and it would create a big list on the side that you can choose from or there's a little pop-up thing so basically we tried every single UI we could think of in vs code
1: and multiple generations like the, the list that didn't work
0: yeah none of the, none, none of them like really worked I think lists were like you know maybe you'd get one generation per person per, per day and this was just a small sample it's just like a few people that were interested in, in at github language nerds or people that have written tests for us and open AI people Yeah. So very early on, I had this idea that it should, I had this idea that it should work like a Gmail gray text autocomplete, Mm -hmm. which was, I was like enamored with that product. It's like, it was the first quote unquote large language model deployment in the wild. It was fast. It was cool. Like the paper's great. Like they give you all sorts of details on how they do it. All the, all the workarounds they had to do. So that was always in the back of my head. You know, it was bad. Also, it was like, you know, those completions are not good, but it seemed like the right, the right thing. Anyway, and somewhere along the way after, I, after we tried all the UI, you know, sort of come up with some idea for VS Code didn't support this. So I tried to hack it in and finally came up with a way to hack it in and uh, enough to make a demo, like a little demo video.
1: Was there support to like build real support for it within the organization?
0: It's a little complicated, I, I guess. You know, we were pretty much a skunkworks project. No one knew about us, so we would go to like the if we go to VS Code, people would be like, "Hey, you, we need you to go implement this very complex feature." We're like, I don't even know who you are. Like, what are you talking about? There was definitely some politicking that happened to to get the VS Code people to dedicate some resources to that on a short short time frame. Like, we were moving really fast. You know, it was less than a year before from beginning to ship public launch.
1: Was there a certain metric where you're like, this is good enough? Like we need to actually put it in the public product?
0: Uh, which specifically with the completions or like the yeah, UI? If it was
1: completions. If it was.
0: Yeah, I, there was I mean, we had a long we had a nice long window of public access before GA. So where it was free and you could use it and and we did a bunch of optimizing for different groups of people that would be, you know, okay, well, you know, do we want more experienced people? Do we want more uh, new people who want people from this area or this area? And that gave us a bunch of really good stats. Uh, So we were able to learn that, for instance, like speed is the only thing that matters. Yeah, there's something crazy thing. Like every 10 milliseconds is 1% fewer completions that people would do. That adds up. 10 milliseconds is pretty fast. We learned that because somewhere in our first few months of public release, we noticed that Indian completions were really low. Like For whatever reason, they were just significantly lower than than Europe.
1: So network latency to India? Yeah. And it turns out because
0: OpenAI only had one data center, so it was all in Texas. And so it was going... If you can imagine, you're like typing, and so that goes from India through Europe, over the water, down to Texas, and back and back and back. And now if you've typed something that doesn't match the thing that you requested, then that's useless, right? So you don't get a completion. By the way, I know it's obvious, but that's happened on every single product
2: I've ever worked on. You know, like when I was at Google, like I worked on a variety of mobile products, same thing, you know, page load times, obviously search in general, 100 millisecond difference, like... It's a big deal. Uh, Makes a
0: big shift in market share. So yeah, it's kind of nuts how much speed matters. Yeah, and so we once we figured that out, we knew that we had something awesome, right? Like people that were close to Texas were like, "This is freaking great!" Like (laughs) they were like, you know, we had a, a Slack channel and people were posting in it all the time. And the most fun stuff was like these people that would pop up and be like, "I don't program, but I just like learned how to write this hundred line script that like does this thing that I need." It's like, oh my god.
1: I definitely feel like I now speak different languages that I don't actually know the syntax of, yeah. which is very exciting.
0: Yeah, it turns out these models are really great at finding patterns. So that once we had the the UI mechanism that worked, so we knew we were knew on something like that. And then it was just this like using as much performance as we, could, you out. Know, like we basically never found the bottom of like, you know, we, we, hit, we made it as fast as we could and it was still improving on completions. And then that perpetuated like, OK, OK. I know there's this plan for like Azure to run OpenAI in six months, we need you to do that in the next month. So like, can we, let's figure out how to make this happen. So, because so, we wanted to run a bunch of GPUs in Europe so so we could hit Asia, you know, there was no, there was no other place that we could, we could run them in Europe, we could run them on West Coast, we could run them in Texas at the time. So that was, and, that, and Microsoft stepped up there, we got it running. And then pretty much after that, we launched and yeah. Were you surprised by the uptake post-launch? No, no. I mean, our retention rate was 50%. Like it never went, like mm-hmm. months later, it was still above 50% by like weekly cohort, which is like yeah. insane, yeah. right? And we didn't, we didn't know if people would pay for it. That was one thing. I lobbied pretty hard for going cheap and capturing the market.
1: How did you guys think about inference
0: cost for this thing at the beginning? Oh yeah, we were our estimates were wildly off, wildly off. Yeah, so we got estimates that were like, you know, it'll be thirty bucks a month for for your on average, right? And then um, once Microsoft was able to like do some kind of do their Azure infrastructure, we were able to then like fork off little bits so we could do more accurate uh, projections and. Uh, there was a bunch of like moments where like, how much is it going to cost? You'd like, wait for these results. The first big one was 10 bucks a month. It'll cost 10 bucks a month. And I was like, oh my God, it's so much cheaper than we expected. And then we could optimize it. And that was like, we hadn't even optimized on price yet. Right. And then we optimized on price a bunch. And yeah, now it's less than that. So like, it was very fortuitous, right? Like we were thinking like, okay, well, maybe it's Maybe it's enterprise only because that's the only people who are going to be willing to pay for this. Like 30 bucks a month is not, it's a lot. And that's like with no margins, right? Um, But yeah. For 40% of your
1: code, it's not a lot.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. We know that that now. Uh, Where do you extrapolate
2: all this like three to five years out? Are there basically going to be just like agents writing code for us in certain ways? Is it 95% of code is written by co-pilots and, you know, humans are kind of directing it. Like what, what do you kind of view the the world evolving into in the next couple of years? And next couple, I mean like three to five, not 20. Yeah. It's hard. I
0: don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think it's hard for me to, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to imagine what that world looks like. Cause it's such a shift from like, I have my hands on something and I know that it's right to um, where we are now, which is, I mostly know it's right, or I have a sense that it's right, but I have to, I have to test it and and see it run, to know that it's right. To then just write this, and I'll I'll trust that it's going to work. Like mm-hmm. those are pretty crazy transitions, right? Yeah, they they exist. Like the,
2: you know, sure, not but not you know. could also imagine like certain ways to do like a code review, post some chunk or some some other sort of quality check
0: to. Yeah, I think every if that's the goal we want to get to is the people like. I think every barrier to that is achievable. Mm -hmm. So we can code review only the dangerous parts or only the confusing parts, or Mm -hmm. we can do things like train a model on functions before and after changes to say like, okay, this looks like a more polished version of this function would be this. Or Mm -hmm. yeah, we can do things like, you know, just start the very basic, you know, very basic main loop and then add everything piece by piece with tests so that it's, you know, what, what works and what doesn't and then just have the the I keep generating what's the logical next feature, like all these things will we get figured out. So if, if that's what we want to do, that's what's going to happen.
1: So what's the what's the idea behind Minion?
0: Yeah, I think I mentioned making bots that do stuff for you. It's a broad topic, and I think it's where we see it going. You know, the next few years are in the AI's taking action, not just uh, answering questions or writing copy, but actually helping us in our daily lives. Things like organizing my schedule or booking flights or finding a trip for me to take or doing my taxes or (laughs) telling me which contacts I haven't talked to in a long time and should reach out to, you know? There's a lot of stuff that we can do by giving AI's access to information and letting them act on that information in a controlled way that checks to make sure that that we're aligned. And yeah, I think that'll be a really fun future. Almost like you can imagine Copilot applied to everyday activities, right? Like Copilot gives you a little bit of help. So I want Minion to give you a little bit of help outside of your code editor. How do you decide to, to work on Minion specifically? Minion specifically? So basically I, I stopped working at Magic. I quit because I, I couldn't figure out how to hook up the AI to data. I was like, if, in, order to, in, in order to improve the quality, I need a PhD in math. Like, I don't know what to do now. And it just sort of, the models got better enough where that specific problem seems solvable. Yeah, so the the tech got better. And so that specific problem is where interacting with the real world broke down in the past. You know, like I said, flights get delayed, prices change, not just like a little bit, all the time, you know, they might not have the seat you want at the concert that you want to go to. And so you know ai's are this kind of compression of everything that you in their training set but they're not a real time mechanism anyway so that that was the idea it was like okay well i think we can you can work on this old problem of how to make a, a bot do stuff for people that's what we want let's go make it i don't know it's like maybe i can use the excitement from copilot to launch into something which is incredibly hard and but which i believe the technology is around for if we can figure it out so Yeah, that's it. That's the only reason I've ever gotten into startups, actually. is like, okay, I want to do a startup so that I can do a harder startup. Yeah. You know, or I want to do a project so I can do a harder project.
1: Is this one sufficiently hard?
0: This one's hard. Yeah, it's good and hard, I think. Part of that is, there are these fun things that you kind of learn along the way that keep, you, that keep you like engaged, right? Like, the thing with code, with Copilot is like, it turns out code is pretty special. Right, like you can run it. So if an AI generates some code and it runs, then you know something about that code that you wouldn't know necessarily the text. And accomplish like doing agent-like work on the internet or on apps is uh, has a lot of these similar kind of properties. Where it's like, oh yeah, you can you can learn something here. We can learn what we can learn from what people do, or we can see if it's a success or a failure, and then learn from that. Or we can optimize what works based on what doesn't work or what, figure out what's annoying and, and and try to improve it. So I think these things all compound in some really interesting way. You know, I think the goal, right, is, is you know, straight out of sci-fi, right? You want to make a thing where you say, hey, computer, file my taxes, and it does the right thing, you know? And uh, I think we can get there. It's certainly in the next few years. But it's also fun to, like, think about how to break these things down and turns out breaking down tasks in the same way that humans do. Take a complex task, you figure out, you know, you write a list of things to go through it. Same kind of thing works for AIs as well. So you break, you break down complex tasks, you figure out if there's any information you need. Maybe you have to write some code. Maybe you have to ask some questions. Maybe you have to query some data. Same thing a human do. Humans don't usually write code to do their taxes, but sometimes it's kind of the same thing. You go through a list of your pay stubs You know, that's executing a for loop. Also, I like data sets that don't exist. So people clicking on stuff on the web is a gigantic data set, which is currently unowned. And so I think that's pretty exciting. I think there's a lot of stuff to learn from that.
1: So you're hiring. And one thing we've talked about is like it's kind of a funny thing to try to hire for building products with this new set of technologies and that like working in machine learning for the last decade may not help you that much. How do you wh- how do you think about the people you need?
0: Yeah, it's been strange. Okay. It seems very bimodal. Like very senior people get it and very young people get it. And so I don't know that the middle has really caught up yet or realizes that- Are we on the other side? Are we in the middle? <laughs> no, I just mean the middle in terms joking, of like- you know, no, I just mean the middle in terms of like, it's like, I'm very young. No, 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 it's not an age thing. It's not an age thing. It's more like you tell someone who's very naive and you tell someone who's very experienced, like, I can make magic. Here's how I can do it. And then the very naive person is like, that's awesome. And then the very experienced person is like, ah, maybe, Yeah. you know? But the response from almost everybody else is that's not possible mm-hmm. or I don't see it. But yeah. And a number of
2: companies I know are trying to build that intuition internally now. And often this is the first time in a really long time that I've seen certain founders come back and start coding again. You know, They'll have a multi-hundred person company and they'll get so enamored by what's happening that they'll just dive in. A number of them have told me that they feel like the some of their team members just don't have that intuition for what this can actually do. And so they don't even know what to build or where to start or how interesting or important it is. And so it's almost like this founder mindset is needed to your point in terms of this is a really interesting new set of capabilities and how to actually learn what these are and then how do I apply them. And I think people lack natural intuition for what what this does right now.
0: It's definitely not intuitive. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I have some intuition now, and people that are again on that experience spectrum have some intuition, but it's not intuitive. There's many kinds of different learners, and there's many kinds of different programmers, right? It takes a certain kind of programmer to be comfortable with this idea of like, I don't know what's going to work. Let me try some stuff. It turns out that's similar attributes to the web or product product making being able to test stuff, look at the right metrics, find the right metrics. Yeah, those are, those are useful skills, I think, that are reusable. But the intuition and the tenacity that it takes to like, you know, this doesn't work at all, what do I do? That's still rare, I think, in that field, because there's, there's so much uncertainty that it's easy to go like, I tried 10 things and it didn't work, so like, this is impossible, like, okay.
1: I think the natural reaction of somebody looking at something that has 10% performance at the beginning is like, why even bother? We're not going to get there, right?
0: That's a great point. The crazy thing is that these things work at all, right? And not only that, but they scale and they improve with scale, right? Most things break at scale. Almost everything breaks at scale. And that's what, you know, that's what you hire people to deal with, you know? Every doubling you usually something breaks you got to fix it. It's a pretty crazy thing to think of what kind of emergent properties might still be out there if we can get these things 10 times bigger. So I'm always I'm always in favor of People pushing those limits, you know, like it doesn't make sense. Like, even even the best people can't explain what's going to happen when you, you know, go bigger. We built the Large Hadron Collider for that reason, too, you know. We didn't know, I don't know. We think maybe we'll find some stuff. These endeavors are valuable. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to be alive during this time.
1: It's a great note to end on. Thank you for joining us for the podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks Alice. so much. Sure.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of No Priors.
2: Follow No Priors for new guests each week, and let us know online what you think and who in AI you want to hear from.
1: You can keep in touch with me and Conviction by following at Sarah
2: You can follow me on Twitter at Alad Gill. Thanks for listening.
1: No Priors is produced in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our team: Cynthia Galdea and Pranav Ruddy, and the production team at Pod People: Alex Vikmanis, Matt Saab Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Danielle Roth. Carter Wogan, and Billy Libby. Also, our parents, our children, the Academy, and tyranny.ml, just your average friendly AGI world government.